Hey, everybody. Welcome to worship. Welcome to outdoor worship here at Hope Ankeny. Uh, we have been praying for a day like this for about two months, I think. Uh, and, you know, the Lord has been slow to answer. I think that's a good lesson for us as we pray that often we don't get exactly what we're asking for right away. But boy, doesn't get a whole lot better than this. Uh, as we've been thinking about outdoor worship, the last three weekends have kind of been filling us with a little angst around outdoor worship. Three weekends ago, rain came through. Like the only time it rained was right when we were getting ready to have a worship service and thunder and lightning we had to cancel. And then the last two weeks, it's just been blistering hot. And we were like, come on, what is going on? This is perfect. Praise God, the maker of heavens and the earth for a day like this. My wife, Wendy, actually asked me a couple of weeks ago, what does the word angst mean? And I was pretty sure I knew, but I thought, let's look it up just so that, you know, we get it exactly right. So here's the dictionary definition of the word angst. A feeling of deep anxiety or dread, typically an unfocused one about the human condition or the state of the world in general. (laughs) I don't need a show of hands or anything, but I wonder if anyone's experiencing any angst these days. Anxiety or dread about the state of the world in general. It is August 1st. I can't believe it's August 1st already. And I wonder since it's the year 2020, if we should maybe just rename this month. Let's, we're, it's probably going to be the month of angst, don't you think? I mean, for a lot of us, there's this sense of angst that's happening in our lives for all sorts of reasons. But it, it seems to me, one of the reasons for angst is we're trying to figure out what is the right decision to make about all sorts of things, but let's give some examples. So what's the right decision to make as it relates to return to learn plans for local school districts? What's the right decision to make for students? What's the right decision to make for teachers? What's the right decision to make for parents? And is it possible there's different answers to each one of those questions? And and, uh, let's look at some other questions, like what's the right thing to do as it relates to issues around social injustice in our country, race relations in our country. Keep it in the context of education. There's something called the achievement gap that we've known about for years. And part of what the achievement gap tells us is there's a pretty big difference in scores, test scores, between students who are white and students who are of racial or ethnic minorities. And it's not just around race and ethnicity. The achievement gap is also around economics. And so we know there's a really big gap in test scores between students that come from high-income families and students that come from from low-income families. And so when we ask the question, what's the right thing to do as it relates to school, if we're trying to shrink that gap, that achievement gap, does this lead to other kinds of answers or other kinds of directions? And it just leads to a whole lot of angst, whether you're in the political world or the education world, whether you're a parent or, or whether you're a student. But one of the things that I find really fascinating just to kind of sit back and observe is how many people are absolutely 100% convinced that they know the right direction. They know the right decision to make. Never mind that we've never gone through anything like this before. Never mind, we've never figured out what does it look like to begin a school year in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Never mind that even though it feels like COVID-19, we've been living through this for like 19 years, it's really only been a handful of months. 
Never mind that the science continues to be inconclusive. Yes, we've discovered some scientific answers to some of the questions that we have, but there are still lots of questions that we have that the science is like we're, we're not exactly sure. So the reality is none of us know with 100% certainty what is the right decision to make, and yet, and yet, and yet. How many of us are walking around talking and acting like we do know? Like we know the right decision to make, whatever that decision is that we're trying. And when we are 100% convinced that we have the right answer, that we know the right direction, when I'm 100% convinced that I am right, guess what that makes anyone who disagrees with me? Wrong. And somehow our society has devolved to this place where we're, there's just two groups of people. Those who agree with me and who are right, and those who disagree with me and, and who are wrong. And it doesn't take a very skilled observer of culture or society uh, to be able to see clearly in this year of 2020 vision. You don't have to be a skilled observer of society to see that when we put people into these two boxes, either right or wrong, it leads to some pretty big division in our world. Pretty big division in our culture. Pretty big division in our communities. And it occurs to me one of the reasons for the angst that so many people are feeling these days is this fear that a lot of us have that disagreement equals abandonment, relational abandonment. Disagreement, if I disagree with you about what the right decision is or what the wrong decision is, if I disagree with you, it's going to lead to abandonment. It's almost like a lot of us are living with this, I don't know, unstated mantra. Unless you agree with me, we cannot be in relationship. Unless we are in agreement 100% of the time on 100% of the issues, unless you see things my way, unless you agree with me all the time, I don't even want to talk to you. I certainly don't want to be in a relationship with you. Unless you agree with me, I can't be in a relationship with you. And again, I, I think if we could kind of peel back and dig underneath our angst, and get as honest as we could be, I wonder if we might find a whole lot of people are actually asking a pretty vulnerable question. Is there a place for me here? Is there a place for me here? Is there a place where I fit in? Is there a place where I am safe to be myself? Is there a place where I belong? Is there a place for me here? Seems to me that's one of the primary questions that people ask when they check out a church for the first time. And so if you're here visiting Hope for the first time and that question is bouncing around somewhere in your heart or or somewhere in your mind, I'd like to just talk to you for a little bit about the mission and vision and values of this church. And and for those of you who've been around Hope for a long time, this is a good reminder for us. We're, we're guided, and we have been, uh, by our mission for over 25 years. Our vision we tweaked last fall. We've got this vision statement and the 10 for 10 vision that's all written out. This is who we believe God is asking us to be. And kind of the boundaries that we play in, uh, the, the tracks of the train that keep us going in the right direction. 
direction. We call these our core values. Core value number five at Lutheran Church of Hope for years and years and years has said this. We are one body united in Jesus Christ. I wonder if we could all say that out loud together. We are one body united in Jesus Christ. Can we say that one more time together? We are one body united in Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to dig into what does it mean to be a church, to be the body of Christ in a way where we are unified, part of what we need to do is understand there's a distinction we have to make between unity and uniformity. Uniformity kind of means we all look the same and we talk the same and we believe the same about everything. We sound the same, uniformity. But unity, unity in the body of Christ is this fascinating paradox. In order to be uh, the united body of Christ, we need to be a church body that's filled with all kinds of diversity. And so we need to have young families and we need to have people who are single. And we need to have empty nesters and grandparents and people who have been around long enough to have lived through and experienced a whole lot of things that they could learn lessons from these things that they could actually teach the rest of us. And we could learn some wisdom from these people, from their experiences and and their life. Uh, We need to have racial and ethnic diversity in our church. We need to come to worship and see people who look like us, and we need to come to worship and see people who do not look like us. We need both. We need both rich and poor. We need both Democrat and Republican and independent and people who could not give a flying flip about politics because they could remind some of us sometimes maybe we're thinking a little too much about politics. <laughs> That's what I get applause for. Oh, I love this church. Uh, what else do we need in terms of diversity? Now, we need people who've been following Jesus for decades. We need people who have just started following Jesus. And we, have, we need people who have not yet made that decision to follow Jesus. We need all kinds of diversity for all kinds of reasons. And one of the reasons is this. The more diverse we are as a congregation the more that's going to force us to do the really important but really hard work of figuring out how do we be united as the body of Christ and how do we make sure we stay united around the important things, the right things. And part of what our core value reminds us is the, the, the right or the important thing that unites us, it's not really a thing, it's a person. We are one body united in Jesus Christ. And the more we live into that value, that actually makes it possible for us to be able to say with loving assurance, anytime somebody comes to us and asks, is there a place for me here? Is there a place for me at this church? We can, with loving assurance, if we're living into that core value, we can say, yes, absolutely, there's a place for you at Hope. There's a place for you here. And if we are being honest, we would have to acknowledge that for a lot of people outside of the church, but honestly, for a lot of people inside of the church, sometimes the assurance around that question, the answer to that question, we're not quite as certain as we could be, as we need to be. You and I both know a whole lot of people here at Hope, but also outside of the church, who are not convinced there's a place for them at this church, there's not a place for them at any church. 
For the last several years at our Good Friday worship services, uh, we've looked at the seven words of Jesus from the cross. We've had seven different speakers uh, in just kind of given a three or four or five minute uh, devotional or reflection on the seven words of Jesus from the cross. Well, one of those words of Jesus from the cross is in our Bible reading for today, uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, where Jesus says, I assure you, he says this to one of the men crucified beside him, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of look at what are the events, what, what are the circumstances that lead up to Jesus giving the man being crucified next to him this loving assurance. I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. So back up about 24 hours earlier, and it's the Passover, and Jesus has gathered with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. Uh, we call it Maundy Thursday. In, during Holy Week, Maundy Thursday. Maundy, a fancy word for mandate, because uh, part of what Jesus does on that Thursday, Jesus gives a new commandment. Love one another the way I have loved you. Love one another the way I have loved you. And he, he washes the disciples' feet, and they celebrate Passover together. And, and part of the celebration is this meal that they share together, and they eat bread, and they drink wine. And in the course of the celebration of that meal, Jesus institutes a new covenant. We call it Holy Communion, and at the end of this message, we'll celebrate Holy Communion together. One of the things that unites us as the body of Christ is the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After that meal, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, prays for several hours. He gets betrayed by Judas. He gets arrested, and he spends the rest of that night into the morning kind of bouncing around between uh, the high priest and King Herod and the governor Pontius Pilate until finally, early in the morning, uh, Jesus is sentenced to death. This is one of the places where I think it's super helpful to have four different gospel accounts rather than just one. Uh, because of these four gospel accounts, each of them has, you know, they all are telling the same story, but each of them is telling it from just a little different, uh, unique perspective. There's diversity in our scripture around the accounts of the life of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why diversity is so important for us. Each one of you has a unique perspective to offer to help us broaden our vision and understand what does it mean to be the body of Christ. And so some of the specific things that we get from each of the different gospel accounts, uh, Mark tells us some specifics around timing. Mark tells us it's at 9 a.m. that Jesus is crucified. That's when the nails go through his hands and his feet, 9 a.m. Matthew spends a lot of time talking about the specifics of the way Jesus is mocked and ridiculed. It begins with the soldiers. After Jesus is uh, sentenced to death, they put this crown of thorns on his head and uh, a fake robe on his shoulders. And one of the details that Matthew gives us is the soldiers gave Jesus a stick and said, pretend like this is kind of a, a royal scepter. Ha, 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 let's make fun of the king of the Jews. And he, Matthew even says, they kneel down in mock worship of Jesus. Soldiers aren't the only ones. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, people are just kind of walking by, going about their day-to-day -day life. And Matthew says they shout abuse at Jesus. 
Even the, the religious establishment, the religious leaders, they're mocking and insulting and ridiculing uh, Jesus. And one of the things that I noticed that I, I don't remember ever kind of picking up on this detail as I was reading through the gospel accounts of uh, Jesus was this verse in Matthew 27, verse 44. Matthew says, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. So both men on either side of Jesus, these two revolutionaries who were crucified with him, ridiculed Jesus in the same way that the soldiers did and that the passersby did and that the Jewish religious leaders did. This is early on, 9 o'clock in the morning, early on in, in this process of crucifixion, which takes a long time. One of the details that Luke tells us is something transformational happens during the three hours between noon, uh, between 9 a.m. and noon. And this is our Bible reading, and I want to just read through it one more time. Luke 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Very next verse, verse 44 by this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land for the next three hours. So what the gospel accounts tell us is at 9 o'clock in the morning, or early on in this process of crucifixion, both revolutionaries or criminals or thieves, depending on what uh, translation you have, it might have a different word there. Both men crucified beside Jesus are piling on, mocking, insulting, ridiculing Jesus. But within three hours, by noon, one of the men has stopped mocking Jesus and is instead calling out for Jesus to help, to save, to remember him. What changed? What made the difference in the course of just those three short hours? Let's look closely at uh, each of, of these two men. The first one says, so you're the Messiah. He scoffs, Luke writes. Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And who knows what was going on in this man's life, but to be a criminal or a thief or a revolutionary, part of what we can guess was happening, his life wasn't going the way he had hoped it would go. Uh, if you were a revolutionary in those days, part of what that meant was you wanted to overthrow the government. You did not like the Romans. You wanted to make sure the Romans were not occupying this land and so the whole goal of his life had been to bring about that process and in in that time and place you were hoping and praying and waiting for the messiah to come to help carry out that mission and overthrow the romans so now here he is none of what he had worked for none of what he had hoped for had actually come true or or happened or worked out the way he had hoped and wanted it to instead he's hanging on a cross next to the guy that some people are saying maybe he's the messiah and so he's not convinced. He has no reason to believe Jesus. 
If Jesus really was who Jesus was supposed to be, then Jesus wouldn't be in that situation, and this criminal, this revolutionary, wouldn't be in his position. So he's demanding proof before he believes in Jesus. He's demanding evidence before he would put his faith in Jesus. He's continuing to scoff and mock and and ridicule him. And if you look, you can start to see his definition or understanding of salvation is simply get me off this cross. Salvation equals get me off the cross. Salvation equals whatever bad and negative thing that's happening in my life, salvation would mean it's no longer happening. Contrast that to the second criminal or the second thief. He says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So instead of demanding proof, at some level, this guy is declaring his faith in Jesus. And part of what we see him doing, he's owning his sin. He's owning his mistakes. He's owning his failures. He says, I deserve to be here. I deserve to be dying for what I have done. I've done something wrong. I've done something bad. And you can kind of tell just by the way he's talking, there's a a tinge of regret in his voice. I heard someone describe regret this way this week. Regret is a grief that is drowned in contempt and judgment. Regret is a grief that is drowned in contempt and judgment. And when you look at the words of this second criminal, I deserve to die, part of what you can see there is a sort of self-contempt, a self-judgment. But at the same time, you see a glimmer of hope. This guy is like, maybe, maybe as despicable as I believe myself to be, maybe, just maybe, there's something lovable, redeemable about me. And so he turns and he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Again, I I don't know how many times I've read through the crucifixion story. Part of what jumped out to me and really struck me this week as I was rereading it was he. this guy doesn't say teacher. He doesn't say rabbi. He doesn't say Lord. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. There's something very personal happening here with these three guys hanging on the cross. When we have Good Friday services and we preach on the seven words of Jesus from the cross, we're really preaching on the seven words that the Bible records Jesus speaking from the cross. But can't we assume Jesus spoke more words than just those seven? What was it that Jesus was doing and what was it that Jesus was saying over the course of these first three hours on the cross that causes this man to look at him and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Well, here's what we do know. We do know both these guys would have observed Jesus saying, Father, forgive them uh, to the people who were mocking and insulting him. And the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus' mother is there along with some other women and the disciple John, uh, they're all there. And so these two men hanging on their crosses next to Jesus, they would have observed Jesus say to his mother Mary, Behold your son. And to John, This is your mother. 
They would have watched and observed Jesus over the course of those three hours. We don't know everything that Jesus did or everything that Jesus uh, said, but we do know at the end of those first three hours, one of the criminals continued to mock and insult and scoff at Jesus, and the other is crying out to Jesus for salvation. What's the difference? What changed? I'm convinced it has everything to do with love. Right? They're, they're hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and they observe Jesus out of love forgiving his enemies. They observe Jesus out of love while he's hanging on the cross, caring for his mother, caring for his friend. Who knows what other evidence of love they would have observed as they hung on the cross with Jesus. There's a verse, one of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Old Testament, this is the Old Testament God. A lot of people think the Old Testament God is so different from the New Testament God. Here's what the Old Testament God says in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. And I think that's what's happening for this thief on the cross. In the course of those three hours, God's unfailing love is drawing him closer and closer to salvation. And there's a message in that for you and for me. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, even when we're not looking for it, even if we're hanging on a cross, even when we're in the middle of whatever negative circumstance we might find ourselves in, even when it feels like nothing is going right in our world, God's never-ending, unfailing love is always on the move. It's always at work. And somehow, in the mystery of grace, while he's hanging on the cross, God's love was drawing this man into relationship. And so he turns and he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. I can't help but wonder if part of what this man is asking is, Jesus, when you finally establish your kingdom, will there be a place in your kingdom for someone like me? Will there be a place in your kingdom for someone like me? And I wonder how many times you and I have asked God that same question. This church is filled with people who are far from perfect. People who have messed up. People who look at the mistakes of their past and they're filled with significant regret. They look at the messes that they have made and they wonder, is there really, is there still a place for me in the body of Christ? A place for me in the church. And thanks be to God, this church is filled with people who have been drawn here by the never-ending, unfailing love of God. And that deserves an applause. This church is filled with people who've been drawn here by the never-ending, unfailing love of God. No matter what's going on in our past, no matter what kind of regret we might have, I, I think part of the regret of this second criminal Part of his regret is, man, I wish I would have believed in Jesus sooner. Man, I wish I would have started listening to him sooner. I wish I would have started following him sooner. Maybe then I wouldn't be in in the mess that I'm in, in the predicament that I am in. And I wonder how many of us, our regret takes us down a similar path. 
If only I would have known then what I know now. Why did it take me so long to learn this valuable lesson? And so part of the angst that we feel and part of the regret that we feel is we're like, oh, maybe it's too late. And and part of what this encounter that Jesus has with the thief on the cross communicates to us is it is never too late. It's never too late. Uh, These are some words from Maya Angelou uh, that I think are dripping with grace. Um, She's reported to have said this at at some point. I couldn't find any uh, specific place that said, actually, yeah, here's where she wrote it or or said it. But uh, supposedly she said this. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Think about how that relates to maybe your marriage. Maybe you're sitting here and you're filled with some regrets about relationships in the past or uh, your current married relationship. And why did it take me so long to see this? Why did it take me so long to figure out the, the ways in which my anger or my addictions or my fear or my insecurity is just really, you know, messing up this relationship? Think about it in terms of parenting. How many times you get filled with regret Why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I say that? Or why did I parent my kid in such a way that they felt like they had to live up to these unrealistic expectations? And now they're stressed out and filled with anxiety and and shame because they never quite felt like they could measure up or live up to it. And we just regret after regret after regret. What if we could get to a place where we could start to believe grace was real? What if we could understand the grace in in this word? Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Part of the angst and part of the fear, whether it's uh, about abandonment or or whether it's regret, we're just wondering, is grace actually real? Because it seems like for so many people, there's no grace offered. You, You get caught making one mistake and that's it. You're done. You're canceled. It's over. What about grace? How does grace work? What does this mean? How does it play out in in the body of Christ? And so we look to this thief on the cross. I deserve to be here. I messed up. I failed. I made mistakes. But he has a different understanding of salvation when you compare it to the, the first thief. The first thief, salvation equals get me off the cross. The second thief, he's not talking about getting off the cross. He's not talking about a removal of his negative temporary circumstance. It's almost like he understands there's something worse than death. And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Salvation, it's not about being good enough. It's not about knowing enough to be more and more perfect all the time. Salvation is knowing we're never going to quite arrive. Salvation is knowing we're in need of a Savior. Salvation is turning to that Savior and asking, will there be a place for me in your kingdom? And salvation is believing that the same words Jesus speaks to that second criminal, Jesus is speaking to you and to me. I assure you, Jesus says, I assure you with all the loving assurance I can possibly demonstrate, I'm dying here, shedding my blood on the cross. I assure you, I love you so much that you can trust, you can believe today 
you'll be with me in paradise. You know what our culture really needs, what our society really needs? We are starving for grace. We are hungry for grace. And so we come to the Lord's table. And when the timing is right uh, for you to receive the love and the grace that Jesus offers to you, those of us who are hungry for righteousness, hungry for grace, we find it all in the body of Christ. I don't know why it takes us so long to see the things that we are blind to. I don't know why it takes us so long to learn the lessons that we're like, oh, I wish I would have learned that sooner. But I do know I'm thankful for grace. And so as you eat the bread and you drink the wine, may you be assured of God's great love for you, never-ending, unfailing love for you. All is prepared. Let's eat.